Hi, this is Bob Bostock, and welcome to Discover DEP, the official podcast of the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection. Each week, we talk with DEP experts about how we protect and preserve New Jersey's air, water, land, and natural and historic resources. So that you'll never miss one of our podcasts, please subscribe to Discover DEP on iTunes or Google Play. You can also follow DEP on the web at nj.gov DEP. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy our podcast. Hi, this is Bob Bostock, and welcome to another edition of Discover DEP. Today we are joined by Ginger Kopkash, Assistant Commissioner of Land Use Management here at DEP. Protecting New Jersey's land is one of DEP's main goals, along with protecting, of course, the state's air, water, and natural and historic resources. Although our state is far from the largest state in the Union, it is the most densely populated, and this makes protecting our land a fairly substantial challenge. Our state's 8,700 square miles of land encompass many diverse uses. Ensuring that the state's land remains diverse and well-protected starts first with our land use management. Land Use Management is a group of diverse programs that protect and enhance New Jersey's environment by implementing the state's land use regulations, our regional land use planning, coastal resource management, and funding projects that result in improvements to the quality of the state's environment. Ginger, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Ginger, tell us more about land use management here at DEP. What is its role? What is its mission? And how do you carry that out? Thank you, Bob. Land use management has three main elements associated with it. We have our regulatory division, our policy division, as well as our planning division. Those three sections all work together to accomplish a comprehensive regulatory program that looks at protecting our coastline, our floodplains, and our wetlands in the state of New Jersey. So. Our regulatory program has the honor of reviewing all development applications that come into the department. When somebody wants to place a structure in our tidal waters, as well as within fresh waters, whether or not somebody wants to develop in a floodplain or wetland or build along our coastline, they have to get a land use permit to conduct that activity our policy office looks at up-and-coming issues. So, for example, when we held our stakeholder sessions, we discovered the big issue that, that people were wrestling with was the loss of coastal wetlands along their shoreline and wanting to restore them. And our regulatory structure was set up to deal with people wanting to build, but really wasn't reflecting how to help somebody when they want to do something good. They want to restore a resource. So our policy office works on those types of issues and then writes regulations, proposes them, and hopefully adopts them so that our regulatory folks could now easily approve or review projects like that. And our planning office get looks at the bigger picture. What's happening in the landscape? What are the development pressures that are occurring? What are the new hazards that may be out there that we didn't think about when we originally wrote our regulations? 
a big issue that they have been spearheading in the state of New Jersey is resiliency. After Superstorm Sandy and witnessing the devastation that happened in our state, our planning office took the initiative to work with our NOAA partners. So NOAA is the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Correct. Yeah. And we were working with our with our federal partners, we obtained grant dollars to help out municipalities wrestle with this issue of what does resiliency mean to them when they were seeking rebuilding. Uh, we we provided to those coastal communities information that they did not have at, at at their fingertips and and really didn't have the experts on their staff to help them. So our planning office has done an excellent job at helping communities recognize what are the coastal hazards that they do have and ways that they can hopefully address them in their coastal hazard plans. And that's one of the things that I find most interesting about so much of the work that goes on here at DEP. It's not a question of, you know, we passed these regulations in 1973 and that's it forever. I mean, we're Mm -hmm. constantly learning new things about how human beings impact the environment, how our building and development impacts the environment. And of course, the environment is dynamic. Also, it's it's changing all the time. Correct. So you're absolutely right. That's why the land use management has to have at least those three elements in it. Without the planning aspects and the policy team working on these issues, the regulatory framework would be stuck in a period of time with a series of facts that are always changing. Mm. And One of the facts that has come out of the information we learned after Sandy is how much our coastal wetlands aided our coastal communities in protecting them from the devastating floodwaters that Superstorm Sandy brought to our communities. How did they do that? How did they protect the land that's already wet? You know, how's that going to protect you from more wet? Yes. Well, they broke the wave before mm-hmm. it reached the land in, in under many circumstances, and they also absorbed quite a bit of the floodwaters. But one of the things we have discovered is after Sandy is our coastal wetlands in many locations are holding floodwaters for longer periods of time, and we're seeing some adverse impact to our coastal wetlands as a result erosion of the shoreline. The statistic that is repeated often is that we are losing up to an acre a day of our coastal wetlands along the Delaware Bay shore. That is devastating. And feet a day along our Atlantic Back Bay area. This is alarming to me as a a person who is passionate about our coastal wetland ecosystem. And our planning folks working with our local partners, because as a result of all the grants that they have obtained, they've developed some great collaboration with nonprofits as well as universities. We're looking at these issues and how we can do a better job at protecting and restoring those wetland ecosystems and informing the communities how important they are. So it actually is possible to restore a wetland after it has been damaged? Yes, it is. What, what kind of things do you do to do that? Well, some of the regulatory changes we made enable us to do that, at least in a less burdensome way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're able to restore that edge of wetlands that are lost. We're able to 
perhaps regain some of the elevation that has been lost. You do that by putting something that, on the wetland? Yes, or? I was just going okay, to go we get We do that through um, beneficially reusing suitable dredge material to accomplish that. And we're looking at that dredge material as a resource that we want to keep in the ecosystem. If we have traditionally dredged areas and removed the dredge material and placed it on land, and what we're finding is that we're robbing the ecosystem of the sediment it needs in order to allow the wetlands to retain some sediment so that they can maintain their elevation with respect to the rising sea levels. So that's certainly a recycle and reuse uh, Yes. And removing practice, yeah. Yeah. Removing it from the system we're finding, which was a practice we thought was not bad, is actually harming the ecosystem. Yeah. So we're looking at ways that we can place the dredge material in the water in an ecologically responsible manner and allow it to naturally move back up onto the marsh platform so that that marsh system can accrete and, and compete with sea level rise. So you don't just dump a bunch of sand, you use something I think is called thin layering, is that right? Yes, that's one of the techniques that we've been piloting and studying to see if that is an effective way to help the marsh ecosystem. Some of the that there's still a lot of question out there whether that's an effective technique or not, but we want to try and pilot other techniques that maybe allow the sediment to reach the marsh platform without actually having to put equipment on the marsh platform. Hmm. So we're piloting a lot of different types of projects and seeing what works and monitoring over a longer period of time. So there's a lot of science and engineering and all sorts of stuff involved in trying to figure out the best way to protect and restore mm-hmm. the wetlands along the coast. Correct. One of the other things that our planning office has discovered, so we, in the beginning, worked independently. We, we worked with each individual municipality and trying to aid them in identifying what their coastal hazards are and what are the possible planning solutions to deal with those hazards, whether it's a pump that might be located in a flood-prone area and you need to move it into higher ground, mm. or uh, a simple thing like you have an outfall that might need to be raised higher in order to prevent the water from backing up into the streets. But what we discovered is that we really need to rise up a little bit higher again and take a regional perspective. So a project of can't just stop at a municipal border because that's not how nature works, right? Right. right. So that's not how flooding works. So we, the state of New Jersey, was honored with another grant that we received from HUD for funding to work on regional resiliency projects. We're just in the beginning stages of that grant, and we hope in the spring of 2018 we will be issuing our RFP for Quest for Partners to go out and work with in the nine affected Sandy counties with municipalities and uh, county government to come up with regional resiliency projects, plans and potentially projects identified in those plans to aid them in addressing their hazards as a result of flooding. So that's a great step forward in terms of increasing resilience in the state, particularly along our coast and in those nine counties that were so 
seriously affected Mm -hmm. by Sandy. Let's talk a little bit about freshwater wetlands, too. They play an important environmental role as well, don't they? Could you tell us a little bit about them? Well, our freshwater wetland program, we have a federally assumed program, which means that we administer the federal 404 program in New Jersey. So we issue the federal permit when we process our state permit. And that's a big honor. There's only two states in the in the nation that have an assumed program, us in Michigan. Well, that speaks to the effectiveness of our program, doesn't it? Correct. Yeah. Yes. And the people of the state of New Jersey honor their wetlands. They value them. And our wetlands play an important role, once again, in protecting us from flooding. They're also a great habitat for many endangered species. And they also replenish our water. They recharge our aquifers, so they play an important role in a healthy environment. And like I said, we're honored to to have such a great state law to protect them. Yeah, that's great. And you mentioned also floodplains. You know, it seems that nobody would want to build in a floodplain because why would you want to take the risk that the structure you're going to put up is going to be flooded? But I guess that's not always the case. So making sure that inappropriate construction isn't taking place in floodplains is another important job that that land use management does. Probably one of the most critical jobs we have is making sure we accurately delineate and verify the extent of a floodplain on a property and and ensure that the development taking place on that property is protective of human health and safety because as we have witnessed throughout the nation, let alone just New Jersey, flooding is devastating and is life-threatening. So it is an important job for us to ensure that the houses are elevated at the proper elevation and that the buildings are properly secured. And you also look at such things as how much of the the property is being covered by an impervious surface and things like that to make sure that there's enough land to absorb waters and things like that along those lines? To some degree. That's more in our coastal program where we look at percent coverage on the site. And then, of course, our stormwater rules look at how much impervious surface you have and therefore how much water you need to retain on site during a typical flood event. Now, I know that over the past eight years, land use management has tackled quite a few regulatory reforms. What drove the regulatory reform process, and what are some of the regulations that have been reformed, and how are they helping you do a better job of protecting our land while also striking that proper balance between developing our land and and protecting it? So our regulatory reform started simply as a result of trying to computerize our permitting system. So we were attempting to build an online system to allow for the electronic submission of applications. And when we started to dissect what we needed to build, we found that it was complicated and cumbersome to submit an application because we had slightly different standards on what a complete application looks like. Mm. And we had heard that from the development community that it was difficult, but until we had to walk in their shoes, we really didn't discover that it really is difficult. So we sat down as a team and looked at all the pieces of paper we were asking people to submit and said, is this really necessary today in the world where we have GIS? And we don't necessarily need someone to photocopy a 
a section of a USGS quad and show us where their property is. And we modernized our application submission system. While we were doing that, we started to also look at things like definitions and where we housed information about how to modify a permit or or to extend a permit. And we once again found in our three regulatory programs, we had a slight twist or a slightly different way that we did it. And once again, we asked ourselves, what, what do we really want to accomplish? And do we really need everything that we're asking for? So we started a stakeholder process just on that part alone. And in that stakeholder process, people started to bring up other subjects mm-hmm. to us. Like it's easier to bulkhead a shoreline than it is to restore a shoreline. And those were things that we had heard about before, but really hadn't explored into any depth. And other items such as why is it I have to notify all these people for this application, but I only have to notify the municipality. I don't have to notify the property owners within 200 feet. So we started to take all those different subjects that were being brought up and we broke into more discrete conversations with interested stakeholders on those specific subjects. And started to explore, is this something that, is this a policy shift that we want to make under this administration or not? And we looked at what science was out there. Were we ready? Did we need to wait for additional research before we advanced a regulatory change? And we started to pare down that list, presented it to the commissioner, and resulted in quite a number of proposals. And these reforms were were designed really to make it a more efficient process for both the people who were applying as well as for your own department to be able to deal with the applications that came in. There wasn't any loosening of any environmental protection in these reforms, was there? It was certainly not our intent by any means was to do anything like that. It really was about trying to look at these specific issues that staff were wrestling with, as well as issues that the public had brought to our attention, and how could we ensure that we were properly addressing it and also being protective of the environment. A great example would be, as I mentioned before, about restoring a shoreline. Mm -hmm. We made it absolutely impossible to put back a wetland where it once was well-intentioned, of course. Fill in water is not a good thing because we've always pictured fill meant development. In this particular case, fill meant restoring a wetland ecosystem or submerged aquatic vegetated environment. And so the changes we made allowed that to happen. And other changes that we made dealt with our beach and dune system. So what we found is that we made it really difficult for communities to maintain an engineered beach and dune. And so we made reforms to our rules to ensure that they could do maintenance of their engineered beach and dunes and move sand, they call it backpassing, that had floated down beach and bring it back up 
so that they could maintain their beach and dune system for a longer period of time because once again we recognized after Superstorm Sandy our engineered beaches and dune systems those communities fared far much better than ones that didn't have it. Those reforms then are really important because it sounds like that you know as we mentioned earlier not only is the environment a dynamic thing but the way our regulations stand they can't just stand there unchanged for decades upon decades because situations do change and it is important as you have demonstrated to take a look at them every once in a while make sure they're fulfilling the goal that produced them in the first place and if they're not make the changes necessary so that they meet the goal of protecting the environment in this case protecting our land and our wetlands and floodplains and and uh, coastal wetlands so it's an important effort which is i imagine quite a quite a slog to get through but at the end of the day when you get through it, it makes a real difference don't you think yes, yes. it does <laughs> i would just say that we should never be afraid to ask ourselves the tough question, are we doing what we need to be doing? Are we spending our time on what's the most important thing? And do we make it difficult for people to do the right thing? And if the answer is we are making it difficult, then we should be brave enough to then put out there that fact and make a change. Yeah, it's a good philosophy. Ginger, tell us a little bit about yourself. You mentioned earlier you've long been passionate about coastal wetlands. What's your background? How did you get into this field? What was your education? And what has been your course to get to where you are now as Assistant Commissioner of Land Use Management, which is such an important job that really touches on every single person who lives in the state of New Jersey, one way or the other? I would say my passion for the environment began as a child, like most of us Mm -hmm. who work at the department. My father always brought us on walks, and we would walk along a stream. My brothers and sisters and I always played along a stream, and we spent most of our childhood outdoors. Was that here in New Jersey? Yes, and I was going to say, in one of the places that was very influential in my life was the Stony Brook Millstone Watershed Association. At that time, I think it was just called the Stony Brook Watershed Association. That's how long ago it was. And they used to have an outdoor educational program for for kids. It was like the classic sixth grade trip. Mm-hmm. And that made a major impact on me and the choices that I made. And also my father would make us watch Jacques Cousteau. And I had a poster <laughs> of Jacques Cousteau. So I think I was destined to migrate towards the ocean. So... With that, those those influences that had a big impact on my life, I majored first. I started off thinking I wanted to go into marine biology, mm-hmm. and then I quickly learned that I loved environmental studies. And I dreamed, seriously, of working for New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection. And when I graduated college, I applied for a job and I was honored to be chosen to work for the DEP. I remember telling my boyfriend, who is now my husband at the time, I can't believe I got the job. <laughs> <laughs> and when I started, I started off in land use management and stayed there for my entire career. I first did coastal wetland work and then wanted to learn more about freshwater wetlands. So I took a class on how to delineate wetlands and spent time doing that. And then thought, oh, I want to learn a little bit more and started doing wetland mitigation work and started our wetland mitigation program. 
and haven't stopped loving it and enjoying it every moment of the day. That's great. I feel very honored to work for the DEP and, and work with the wonderful employees at DEP. So the lesson is follow your passion. Absolutely, and it starts very young. And those influences certainly made a big difference when I was a child, which is why, as you recently saw on our land use management page, we have a uh, section with respect to environmental education and a little fun game for kids to play with respect to just learning about the coastal ecosystem. So it's really important that we give back and share with our kids. Well, that's great. Well, this has been a very interesting and wide-ranging conversation. Uh, Of course, when you are responsible for 8,700-plus square miles of the state, it's bound to be wide-ranging because one of the things that I've mentioned frequently is the geologic diversity of this state is so extraordinary, from the sandy beaches down Cape May all the way up to the high point and everything else up in the northwest portion of the state. A lot of variation in geology, which affects how we use the land and everything else. So you've got a lot on your plate, but certainly you and your staff are doing a great job uh, managing the land, not just for those of us who are fortunate enough to be in New Jersey today, but for the generations that will follow. So Ginger, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to be with us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Discover DEP. If you have comments on the podcast or ideas for future podcast topics, please email us at podcast at dep.nj.gov. Enjoy the rest of your day.